This episode of Ministry Monday is brought to you by CLEF, Catholic Liturgical Ensemble Formation. The CLEF Summer Program, taking place July 23rd to 28th in Milford, Ohio, is a unique opportunity for education, skill building, prayer, and community connections specifically designed for ensemble musicians with options for an ensemble track or retreat track. For more information, visit clef.life. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is episode 217 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to Ministry Monday. Please subscribe to Ministry Monday wherever you listen to your podcasts each week. And hey, thanks for joining us today. Today on the podcast, we revisit the most listened to episode of 2022, which was also, incidentally, part one of Ministry Monday's Exultet series. Today, we speak to Father Paul Turner about the historical context of the Exultet, the sacred chant sung at the start of the Easter Vigil. The Exultet is such a distinct moment in the Triduum journey. Covered in darkness, punctuated by candlelight, the Exultet is a nine-minute chant prefacing what is about to happen in the Easter Vigil liturgy. Christ, returning from death's domain, grants us all eternal life through his resurrection. It is to begin. And so today, Father Paul Turner provides a historical, biblical, and liturgical context from which to prepare the Exultet this Lent. When was the Exultet first sung? How did it find its place at the start of the Easter Vigil? Why are deacons so often chosen for this role? And what about the role of bees in the newest translation? On a side note, we encourage you to check out the other two parts of this Exultet series, which includes an instructional video on how to best learn how to sing and proclaim the Exultet. These can be found on the NPM website, npm.org, as well as the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org. Now, before we begin, I want to give an editorial note about this interview ahead. I will admit that prior to my interview with Father Paul, I had been adjusting the volume settings on my microphone and forgot to return them to their normal settings prior to recording this interview. For this reason, my audio sounds a bit distorted at times. I have done my best to smooth out the edges, if you will, and make sure that it is as least 
audibly offensive as possible. And I think you'll agree with me that the content of this interview is still so excellent. And I thank Father Paul for his time today. Today on Ministry Monday, I'm speaking to Father Paul Turner. Hi, Father Paul. How are you? Amanda, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for the invitation to join you today. Thank you. I have to admit, I always love our Ministry Monday interviews because you always come with such knowledge, to which I will be asking for just a little bit more of today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. I'll be glad to contribute what I can. You've got a great uh, program. I'm a faithful listener to to Ministry Monday. So thanks for all all your work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So today, Father Paul, we are going to be talking about the Exultet, the sacred chant that we hear every year on Easter Vigil. And we're really going to be unpacking that over the next couple of weeks of Ministry Monday. But I really wanted to start today by looking at the roots of the Exultet, if you're okay with that. You bet. That would be just just great. We have references to people singing something about the, uh, a candle in the fourth century, but we don't really have uh, a text to look at until the, the arrival of a, a book called the Gothic Missal in the seventh century. So this predates the, the Roman Missal. It, it was one that had a smaller circulation, but some vibrancy because it, it was handed on from one generation to the next and through at least some, some area. So we, we do have this, this treasure that, that dates to, to this time. And it's, it's a, the original version is a bit longer than, than the one we use today. It, was, uh, it went through some, some renovations for the, for the Roman Missal. And then in the third edition, actually in the, in the, in the post-Vatican II church, it, it, uh, it was tidied up a little bit more. And of course, we have a fresh translation of it now in the, in the third edition of the Roman Missal. I'm saying fresh, it's about 10 years old now, but, uh, <laughs> but it is c- compared to the seventh century. That's pretty fresh. I'd say that's pretty fresh. Yeah, I'd say so too. <laughs> so um, let's fast forward then from the seventh century to the pre-Vatican II liturgy. So um, pre, pre-Vatican II council, what was the Exultet's role? Yeah, its, its role came near the beginning of the Easter Vigil as we experience it now. It had a, a couple of different uh, differences within the liturgical structure of the Vigil than what we honor right now. For example, it, it came immediately before the Gloria. It was kind of the last bit of some of the vigiling that, that took place. And then when the Gloria began, people were more in the mind of celebrating the, the Easter Mass, if, if you will. But uh, one of the other, uh, other interesting things about it pertains to the grains of incense that we put into the candle. I'm not even sure if many people realize that that's what those are. You, you see these pins sticking in your Paschal candle that, that look decorative. The idea is that those are grains of incense on a pin that sticks into the, the candle and reminds us of the five wounds of Christ that are now uh, symbols of, of his triumph over, over death. So in, in the past, those incense grains were placed into the candle during the exultant. Oh, wow. There was, uh, there was a, a, a phrase about the, the offering of the, of the sacrifice of the, of the candle, and it's believed that somewhere along the line, the, the Latin words were miscopied or misunderstood 
to refer to incense at, at that time. So that generated this custom of accompanying the words with, with the action. Today, we realize that that wasn't the intent of the, of the original words. So the incense grains have been pulled uh, to an earlier part of the celebration where they are uh, part of the preparation of, of the candle. It, the wording of it there is kind of um, un unusual in the missile. It, it seems to imply that the, the use of those grains is actually optional, that it that isn't required to have them. We are required to carve into the candle the, uh, the cross, the, the Greek letters alpha and omega, A and Z of the uh, the equivalent of that in, in the Greek alphabet, and this beautiful prayer that that the priest says as he does that to to signify Christ. So those those actions are now coming at the beginning, and the exultant stands on its own as this remarkable proclamation of what is happening on this great night. In the pre-Vatican II liturgy, too, not only did, like you just described, did it have a different place in the role in the order of what was going on, but who customarily would sing the exultet in a pre-Vatican II world? Yeah, it would, it would. It would be the deacon. It has traditionally been assigned to the deacon. The uh, in the absence of a deacon, a priest would do it because, of course, every priest has been ordained a deacon along the way. So we we can still do functions that deacons do. So you're, you're right that part of the, the post-conciliar uh, expansion of, of this has been the, the permission for even a lay cantor to sing the, the exultet if, uh, if that becomes necessary. So that the implication is that not every priest has a deacon, not, not every deacon or priest has the ability to sing this, uh, this challenging work. And as I'm sure you know, as a musician, it is not easy. It, it takes a lot of practice to get familiar with the notes and the words and to actually sing them with meaning that, uh, that, that can inspire people as they listen along. So a good, a good cantor, a good late cantor is allowed to do it. There's a little section of the exultet that's cut out in, in that case mm -hmm. because uh, the original text refers to the, the deacon who is singing it. He, he asks for the, for the prayers of, of the people as he begins to sing. And you notice in the translation we use right now, uh, he lists himself among the members of the order of Levi. There were, uh, this, this is a reference to, to Levi from the time of Moses, the, his descendants, the Levites assisted the priests at the temple and it created in Christian tradition the idea that deacons offer a similar service, a, a Levite service, Levitical service to, to assist the priests. So that, that reference, all of that ob, uh, obscure reference to the, to, the, to the Levites is omitted when it is not a deacon uh, or a priest who is singing the exultant. You just mentioned, of course, too, that in, in that reference to the Levites, there makes that connection between the deacons. And you may honestly have just answered this, but I'm going to ask, why a deacon? Why is it so historically steeped that a deacon is the chosen role for the exultant? You know, I, I assume it's because there are some similarities to the gospel. You, you notice how mm -hmm. before the, the deacon sings the exultet, he goes to the priest, bows down, and asks for a blessing. The, the priest gives a blessing very similar to the, to the one he gives before the proclamation of the gospel. 
and only mentioning that it's the, the these paschal praises that the, the deacon is going to sing. And then the, the deacon goes to the ambo, and that's fairly new too, that, that he is allowed to go to the place from which the gospel is proclaimed. And of course, the message of the exultant is good news. It is the resurrection. So it is a, a, a not a biblical reading, but it is a, a proclamation of what the, the gospels are, are proclaiming. So I, I think for all those reasons, there are resonances with that role of the deacon being being connected to the proclamation of the gospel at, at the mass. Okay, I could definitely see that connection then. So you've connected the pre and the post Vatican II role for the exultet. Um, let's talk a little bit now in a more a much more modern stance versus like you said the seventh century and let's talk about some of the specific changes that happened in that translation in 2010 what were some of the specific changes that were deemed necessary with the roman missile changes yeah let me let me share one other uh thing about the the presentation of the book itself yes. while we, before we start looking at the words within the book mm -hmm. uh, i neglected to mention something in the history of the exultant that people might find of some interest and that is that, of course, in the days before books, they had to have some other kind of parchment and scroll to sing from. So 11th century Italy created these exultant scrolls. And you can still see some of these in museums in Northern Italy. They're, they're really quite extraordinary. Uh, most people know Pisa as the, the place where the leaning tower is. It's the bell tower of the cathedral. The cathedral also has this lovely museum, and within it, you can see examples of an exultant scroll. So try to imagine a very long, narrow piece of parchment with the music on it, and the, the deacon standing way up high in the ambo next to a very tall candle, and sort of uh, throwing the, the, uh, the parchment inch by inch over the top of the ambo while he's singing the, the exultant. So to add to the interest of this, there were artists who painted the biblical scenes that are alluded to in the Exultet upside down on the parchment. <laughs> so as you, as the deacon scrolled it over, it would be right side up to the people who were watching it. It was kind of like an early movie. You, wow. you, you could watch <laughs> these things, uh, watch the story unfold while, while the deacon went, went on and, and, and sang it. Uh, some years ago, one of our publishers was trying to come up with an idea for publishing the Exultant independently. I tried to get them to do the, the scroll, but they weren't going. <laughs> nobody would nobody would pick up on, on that again. But the words, uh, as, you're, as you're asking about, the, the words are very interesting and, and certainly did go through some, some adjustments along, along the way. The, the principles of translation were, were applied clear across, and as, as frequently happens in the work that ISIL does, they engage the, the, the work of a particular translator to get things started. That, that's called the, the base translator for a project. And in this case, they chose a person who was especially steeped in the history of chant uh, and in religious life and uh, really became a, a, a beautiful text. It, it certainly went through some uh, improvements through the, through the process, but it, it got us the, the text we have today. The most notable thing, I, I think, is the bees. The, uh, the first translation, 
kind of kind of eliminated some of the the uh, florid language uh, concerning the the work of bees, and especially in the in the second case, there's a a reference to to how the the bees the, the mother bee spins this wax and. We know now mother bees don't do the wax. That's uh, <laughs> worker bees who do that. And and also they, there was a belief that bees reproduced asexually. So this became an, a special sign of purity and some mystery surrounding the, the production of wax. So we, we know a lot more about bees and wax today than, than we did then. And perhaps for those reasons, the, uh, the enlightened uh, first translation thought we'd better not try to add some things that, that could be head scratchers for, for folks. But the new <laughs> rules were to uh, include everything that was there in the Latin, not, not to eliminate things. And if they're worth some images that, that gave people pause, perhaps they, they were invitations, they were doorways into a deeper reflection on the history of the text, its meaning and, and, and its, its significance for us today. Let's talk about actually that the text a little bit more, if you're okay with that. What are some of the scriptures on which the exalted is based? You know, it, it ends with a, a lovely reference to the morning star, which mm -hmm. is uh, you know uh, a reference back to the book of Revelation. And even one of the letters of Peter, I think, makes a reference to Christ as the morning star. But the uh, one of the most famous expressions within the exalted is even known uh, in, in among many English speakers by its Latin words, and that is Felix culpa. I don't know if you've run into that before, but it is something that you sometimes hear people, people use in, in conversation. It's an oxymoron that means happy fault. You know, how could someone's fault be a source of, of happiness? And it's a reference back to the, the sin of Adam is had he not sinned, had that fault not taken place, we would not have had the happy result of, of resurrection. Being born is one thing, but being born into eternal life is, is something else. So that, that reference back to Adam is, uh, is one of the most significant phrases within, within the Exultet and still, still pretty well known. There, there are also references to the exodus from Egypt, and this is extremely significant for the Easter vigil. As you know, we have nine possible readings that we may use at, at the vigil, and among the Old Testament readings, the only one that is obligatory every year is the, is the one about the, the exodus. So the, uh, the, the going through the, the waters of the Red Sea, escaping enemy, becomes a symbol of baptism and resurrection as uh, Christ escapes death and uh, reaches into the new shores of new life. And of course, the newly baptized, literally through water, are turning uh, away from uh, a life away from grace, uh, you know, potentially uh, uh, susceptible to, to evil into a life of greater commitment and, and joy. So the, the exodus becomes uh, a truly uh, important pivotal scene here, not only for the exultet, but for the, but for the vigil in general. We, we referred to that event also as the Passover, looking back upon the, the Exodus, because before they get in their chariots and go to the Red Sea, the uh, destroying angel has come through the camp 
and has caused destruction uh, throughout, but passed over those who were uh, very much uh, uh, blessed by God and protected by, by God who would, would be brought in. So the, 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 the Latin refers to the Passovers in the, in the plural. And this is something we, we lose in English. Uh, the, so because it blends the, the Old Testament Passover with this New Testament resurrection as, as Passover. And I say we, we lose it in English because in some languages, French, for example, the word for Easter is Passover. So the celebration of Pâques, you know, is it, it uses the word from, from the book of Exodus to describe what, what we are doing even today. And there the, the idea of the Passovers is, is a little bit, bit clearer. You mentioned before that, of course, we all know that in the translated version, the newly translated Roman Missal version, there is a short form and a long form. Can you shed any light on why they created a short and a long form? I am sure it relates to two different possibilities. One is the ability of the singer. You know, if, if you really don't have uh, someone gifted and they are working very hard to deliver this, maybe doing the short form is a more reasonable goal for, for that person that was already going to be abbreviated somewhat if a, if a lay singer would be doing it. So perhaps it was more that that could be cut. And then I think it also fits the, the pattern that you see in the lectionary for mass where frequently one of the readings appears in both a longer and a shorter form. Right. When the, when the uh, concilium was working on this after the council and before we got the books, they, they thought too, they, they wanted to bestow on people a generous supply of the scriptures, but they didn't want to overtax them with readings that were going to be too difficult, too long to grasp. So it may also have been an outreach to the sensibilities of the people participating at the vigil. It was going to be a long night. You don't want to you know, expend all of your energy in the first few minutes of the evening before the, the rest of the liturgy get, gets underway. So I, I think in, in general, going with the long form is better. It, it gives the, it's faithful to the, to the long tradition. It gives this expansive beginning to the, and a solemn beginning to, to the vigil. But if there are various problems that, that people perceive, they, they may certainly go with, with the shorter form. On a side note too, but similarly, do you think it's that same type of consideration when it comes to allowing of the nine readings that you already mentioned that, you know, a, a church can choose, you know, it, a minimum of three? Is there any type of consideration in that regard for, again, time and the parish at large? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's why that permission is there. It, it allows for a reduction of, of the readings. In the, the history of the vigil has had a, many different numbers of readings. There was nothing consistent in the, uh, over, over the entire history of, of the vigil. So they, they knew they were in, a, in an area that, that had some variation and they, they wanted to contribute to it in some way. Those readings have changed a bit since, uh, since before the, the time of the, the council. Yeah, but, but what we've got now, they, they do want to have 
uh, at least three readings from the Old Testament that come both from the law and the prophets, and they want the uh, one of them to be the the story of Exodus. So with those plus the the New Testament reading from Romans and the and the Gospel of the year, there's a minimum of five readings, which gives this liturgy an especially solemn character. And and since it is a vigil, it it helps you experience the vigil. You know, the, you, the readings themselves are considered the primary component of keeping the vigil while we are while we are celebrating the, the resurrection. Right, exactly. Okay, so transitioning now in my last set of questions is preparation. So does the Roman Missal have any preparatory information in a prenotanda or otherwise that helps the proclaimer prepare for the exultant? Not really. It just kind of throws it out there for you. <laughs> and uh, and it, it it's uh, it's like any of the other prayer texts of, of the Missal, they really are exceptionally rich. And, uh, and it takes some uh, reflection on them or consulting other commentaries to to learn a little bit more about what is what is in them. So uh, I, I think people's people's first mode of preparation is the same as you would when you approach the scriptures. Just go one on one, toe to toe with the exulta. Put the words in front of you. Try to pray over them, meditate on them, see what it is that that they're calling to mind. Try to put it in your own words. What what this is all all about, so that you've got a way of expressing the the wonders that that this is and then use that awe that that wonder to to aim for as you as you rehearse the, the exalted and, and prepare to sing it my last question for you is have you ever sung the exalted at an easter vigil yes i have uh here at the at the cathedral right now it is our custom for me to do it we have wonderful deacons, but we, we kind of feel it's, since the bishop is presiding, um, I, I can step in there and, and do, the, do the singing. I have a, more of a musical background than, than the deacons do, so it, it, I can bring some of that experience into it. And in, in previous parishes where I've worked, I've been the, as the presider without a deacon or with a deacon who really could not sing at all, um, I would sing the Exultet, but one of the things I noticed then is how tiring it, it became to be the, the presider and the singer of, of the Exultet. I was putting a, a lot of energy into its, its proclamation right away, and then um, I still had a long <laughs> liturgy to go, uh, many, more, many more notes to sing before the, before the night was done. So uh, I... Just if I were presiding today, I'd probably be a little more, a uh, little more interested in having somebody else do it. But since the bishop carries most of the the weight of our Easter vigil at, at this cathedral, I'm uh, I'm happy to step up and and sing the exultet. And Lord willing, you'll be singing it this year. I hope. Yes, God willing, that'll that'll happen. You know, Good. I think we did put a a clip on our. YouTube page last year. So if people wanted to see me sing the Exultet, they could they, they could watch that video. Oh, well, maybe I'll have to find that and put that in the show notes of this episode. That'd be great. Yeah. And okay. I'd, I'd appreciate it too, if you could let people know about my book, Glory in the Cross, because I've got four pages in there about the background to, to the Exultet. If people want to see a little bit more about uh, that part and the other parts of Holy Week, 
I think they would they would find that uh, very helpful in in their preparation for this solemn proclamation. Absolutely. I'll put that Thanks. link in the show notes of the episode as well. Great. Thanks, Amanda. Well, Father Paul, as usual, this has been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise as we all prepare for this Lenten journey. Thanks so much, Amanda. Blessings on you this Lent. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Exalt, let them exalt the hosts of heaven. Exalt, let angel ministers of God exalt. Let the trumpet of salvation sound aloud our mighty King's triumph. Thanks so much to Father Paul for his time today. For all of the resources that he mentioned, the Glory and the Cross book, as well as a recording of Father Paul singing the Exalted on Easter Vigil, check out the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org. Tune in next week for How to Musically Prepare the Exultet by Nicholas Will. This is going to be a fabulous episode to pass along to your clergy or elected layperson who will be preparing the Exultet this Lenten season. The recording of the Exultet is provided by Father Paul Turner, which you hear in the background today as our exit music. The theme music for Ministry Monday was produced by Aaron Schaus. In today's episode of Ministry Monday was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's it for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. God Almighty, that he who has been pleased to number me, though unworthy among the Levites, may pour into me his light unshadowed, that I may sing this candle's perfect praise.